David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day, everyone. Very nice to see you. Uh, welcome. We are carrying on our series in uh, the books of First and Second Samuel. And uh, we've moved on to chapter 18. And uh, without any further ado, Enoch is going to read chapter 18, verse 1 to 13. Round of applause for Enoch. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. Uh, So this is a uh, story that has um, some striking resemblances to a number of other stories in the Bible. It's a story about envy and rivalry and desire. It comes uh, as a sort of echo from some of the most famous biblical stories up to this point. Cain was envious of Abel, and he murders him. Leah was envious of Jacob's other wife, Rachel, being loved more. Rachel was envious of Leah being pregnant, and they spent their lives embittered towards one another. Jesse's sons were jealous of their brother Joseph. They beat him, threw him in a well, and sent him into slavery. And now Saul is envious of David, and he tries to pin him with a spear. The thing about envy, and this is a sort of talk about envy really, is it's not that easy to see. Its effects are obviously obvious and dramatic, 
as we will come on to. But the root cause, it's not so readily identifiable. Are you envious? Murder, by contrast, you know when you've murdered someone. Lying, you usually know when you've lied. Stealing, you know when you've stealed. Adultery, when you're lying in bed and go, where did you come from? You know when that has happened. Envy, though, no one thinks they're envious because it hides. And do you know how many people over the years have told me that they've got a problem with envy? None people. None people have ever said that. And yet, I want to suggest um, that envy, or actually more accurately, uh, the desire that underpins it, which is really sort of synonymous, I think, with envy here, is actually uh, the root cause, I think, of um, all the world's problems. The issue for us is if we can let Jesus fix our misdirected desires, our envy and our covetousness, will go a long way to experiencing the heaven on earth that we were created for. Now, this is a sort of uh, theory that I'm exploring and continue to explore, and I'm going to explore it with you now. Um, but I wonder whether we can go on a little journey. We like to believe, don't we, that we are autonomous, independent people capable of making free choices. That there is a straight line between me and the things that I want. The truth of the matter, though, is that all desire, all covetousness, all envy is not actually the product of our own free will at all. We desire things not because we've decided we want them, but because we see other people desiring them. Uh, a couple of years ago, I've said this before, but um, at our school, pretty much everyone at the school, all at the same time, decided to buy the same dog. And that dog was a honey brown golden doodle. Every single one bought one. We tried to buy one. Uh, we bought the wrong dog. Uh, we got Ziggy instead, who we've grown to love. Uh, but nevertheless, we all tried and now have the same dog. And they've all grown up together, wandering around, looking exactly the same, like a teddy bear apart from Ziggy, who does not look like that. He looks like a rat. And we love him. But it's hard to me, for me to believe that everyone at our thoroughly LA, middle-class, liberal elementary school decided all of their own free will to suddenly pretty much get exactly the same dog at exactly the same time. And don't think you cat lovers are any different. You all want exactly the same cat, don't you? And the cat that you want is a ragdoll cat. And some of you want it so much you've bought two, haven't you, Ben? Now, of course, there are more contrarian of us, and we vehemently reject the consensus, do we not? But the unfortunate truth for us is that the desire not to conform is also a received desire desired by many. Look at punks or hippies. Aggressively countercultural, are they not? But strangely, all wearing very, very similar clothes and listening to very, very similar music and speaking about very, very similar things. There are basic instincts, of course, built into all of us as humans. We know we need shelter, we know we need food, we know we need warmth. Our bodies tell us when we are lacking in these things. But desires, on the other hand, envy and covetousness, are things we pursue for which there is no purely instinctual basis. 
There is no built-in mechanism for what type of restaurant I should go to. We are going on vacation to Mexico today. I could have gone anywhere else, but I want to go to Mexico. But there is nothing intrinsic in me saying you must go to Mexico. I just like margaritas, and I like the beach, and I want to go there. In the Ten Commandments, the first half is about our relationship with God, and then the second half is about our relationship with other people, with our neighbor. And uh, from uh, 7, 8, 9... Six, seven, eight, nine, are all pretty short and simple. Let me read them to you. This is from Exodus 20. They're listed in order of seriousness. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. They are all prohibition of acts. Do not do these things. But the final commandment is unlike those four in that one, it's much longer And secondly, rather than prohibiting an act, something obvious that we can see and touch and feel and know that we've done, it prohibits a desire, something beneath the surface, in the heart. This is the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox and donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Unfortunately, we've somewhat lost the meaning of this. We've come to kind of think, I think, of covetousness as being a sort of sinful state that only sort of hardened sinners have. But the word in the original Hebrew actually just means desire. It's the word used of Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge. It is really at the core of what it means to be human, to desire. And so this 10th commandment is kind of written uh, as though it's like a thought processed in time. The writer begins uh, with, do not covet your neighbor's house. Definitely don't do that. But then he realizes that's not quite enough. So also don't covet his wife. And then that's probably not enough either. Or his servants. And oh, actually his ox and his donkey. And then he realizes he's going to have to go on for a long, long time to get through all of this. And so he ends up, actually, you should not cover anything that belongs to your neighbor. He stops trying to list everything, knowing he'll never cover it all, and ends up with that, which is the key to understanding what desire is about in general. Not things, but neighbors. What the Ten Commandments so perceptively identify is that desire isn't about things per se. It's about things that become desirous, and they become desirous only because our neighbors have got them. Verse 7 from our reading. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. Does David, does Saul, sorry, really care about 10,000 kills when he's got a thousand? Because these songs are actually quite common. These songs were sung, and they are sung not with that much attention to detail, but rather because of the people that they want to honor. If you were named, that was everything. It does not really matter what follows. Everyone's just singing your song. 
So in singing Saul's song and singing David's song, everyone is just saying, we honor David. We honor Saul. We honor Saul. We honor David. But Saul fixates on the numbers. Or rather, he fixates on David. Because desire is always about the, the fact that my neighbor has something. And often subconsciously, we seek out models. We seek out our Davids. People who show us what it is we haven't got and therefore what we need to desire. These models can be as close to us as our closest friends or as far away as someone we could never only interact with through a screen or in print. Desire is always for something that we lack, not something that we need. And it's never, ever satisfied. We like to think that desire is kind of object-orientated, that once we've got it, it will be enough. But desire never actually finds fulfillment in a particular thing. There is, in fact, this constant, never-ending flow of new desires, new things to keep us occupied. And it's not just limited to things, of course. In fact, most desires is not for things at all. Uh, I used to work in advertising before I did this. Uh, and I wrote ads for various agencies in London. The reason I ultimately left it all behind, other than the fact that uh, there was no one left to give me a job anymore, uh, was because I realized that fundamentally, I didn't really like the work anymore. I didn't really believe in it. It was really fun. Um, but I realized I, I don't, my heart's not in this. And I think the realization came when I was uh, writing an ad for bottled water. It was actually the moment uh, that Hannah uh, felt like she might fall in love with me. Isn't that remote? Oh, it was just the first time we met. The same thing. Uh, anyway, I was, trying, I was struggling. It was for a brand called Vitel Water. I don't think you have it here. I'm trying to write ads for Vitel Water. And as with so many products, the problem is we're not trying to sell the product. It's water. It's the same as everything else. We were advertising the idea of water. I think we came up with a very sort of meta, postmodern line. It was something like, um, let's keep it our little secret, but it's just water. It's quite good. Uh, the idea being that we were exposing what everyone else knew, that all bottled water was just water, but Vitel drinkers, we were in on the joke, which made us better than everyone else, didn't it? But what we were doing, what the vast majority of advertising does, was not real. We weren't creating desire for water. We were creating desire for that which other people desire. During COVID, a lot of people moved to Austin or Nashville or, or Dallas or Denver or Boise. Those were the places. So many people, in fact, that if you were anything like me, you might have started thinking, should I move to Austin? I mean, I don't know anyone in Austin. I don't really know anything about Austin. I really like it here. My kids like it here. I'm leading a church here. There's loads of good stuff here, but maybe I should move to Austin, but also Austin and Texas and what? But all of a sudden it creeps in because everyone else is doing it, or so it seems. It's insatiable, this desire. And deep down, our desires are just plain old envy and jealousy, are they not? Not for things, but for identity. 
what we want is a different sense of ourselves. No one desires an Oscar because they like little gold statues, not really. They desire Oscars because of what other people have said that being an Oscar winner says about who you are. The more people want one, the stronger that desire to have one becomes. And this is where things can get a little darker, and I think this is what happens with Saul in our passage. When desire takes hold on a grand scale, people stop being who they are entirely, who they really are. They lose their individuality. They lose their God-given image status of his vice regents, his image on earth, his precious, unique person. And they all become copies of one another. When everyone starts desiring the same thing, that's when conflict arises. How many wars down the centuries have been fought over desire? Every single one of them. I want your land. I want your people. I want my power over you. How many bullies in the playground gather together, all desiring the same thing, whether it's popularity or recognition or success or love or whatever, and then take out their unmet desires by beating up the innocent kid. Because there's nowhere else to direct the rage because it cannot be satisfied. Desire quickly turns to rage. And either the, eats the group of people together alive or it's turned outward towards some third party. And this is precisely what happens with Saul. But back to the Ten Commandments. Rather than begin with the cause and then address the consequences afterwards, the Ten Commandments reverse the order. They start with the most pressing matter. In order not to have any violence, we need to stop the murder. Okay, let's stop there. But then they climax with the root of it all. You murder, you commit adultery, you lie, you steal. Why? Because you covet what your neighbor has. See the progression in Saul. He begins comparing himself to his neighbor. He covets what David has, 10,000 kills. That's the desire. But it's the desire which then, verse 8, turns into him getting very angry. And then one verse later, he says, he kept a close eye on David. He fixated on him. He watched his every move. He became obsessed with him. He wouldn't let him out of his sight. It's not about 10,000 versus 1,000 anymore. It's not about a thing at all. It's just about a person. He's obsessed, which then, verse 10, leads him to, the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly on Saul, and he, then he's trying to kill David with a spear. A quick note about an evil spirit from God. Yes, yes, lots of nodding. Does God send evil to people? Can I just say, the answer to this is a definitive no. For a couple of reasons. The first is based just on philosophical reasoning. 
the overriding message of the Bible is that God is good. He is distinguished from all the neighboring gods in that he is not vindictive, he is not evil, he doesn't cause bad things to happen. He is solely 100% good. There is no turning in him. He is perfect, pure, blameless holiness. He is wonderful and he is love. And therefore, philosophically speaking, there cannot be any evil in him. He cannot emanate from him, he cannot send it, he cannot do it because he is love. Nothing more, nothing less. It is impossible. It is impossible. You should write that on your heart, on your head. Read it in the mirror every morning when you brush your teeth. It is impossible for God to do bad things because he is good, right? So given that, what's going on here? Well, the second reason is contextual and and sort of um, based in translation. Evil spirit, unfortunately, nearly every translation translates it as evil spirit, but the word is almost impossible to translate, and it certainly does not mean evil. I think the uh, ESV translates translates it as harmful, which is better, but still not quite there. Really, the word uh, is like um, uh, terrifying. And it appears uh, in a similar instance in Judges 9. In Judges 9, Abimelech uh, is fighting the people of Sheshem, and they're angry with each other. But then this happens, and they go from being quite angry to being very angry and murderous indeed. And then they have a big war. The same is true for Saul. He goes from being displeased, being angry, to raging. He's turbulent. And then he becomes murderous. But what God is not doing is afflicting him with evil. In the very next verse, it says that Saul was prophesying, i.e. he was having communion with God, i.e. he was connected to God, i.e. he was hearing God's voice, i.e. he was hearing what God was saying and he was saying it back to him. He was not dislocated from God. He was close to him. And yet, what God has done is not given him an evil spirit, but he's given him freedom. God won't let him be plucked from his hand. He will still be there speaking to him, allowing him to prophesy. But what he will do is allow Saul to experience the consequences of his choices because freedom is so important. God is letting Saul go. God is like the father of Jesus' parables, which Hannah was talking about earlier. Heartbroken when his son basically wishes him dead, wanders off with all the inheritance and squanders it. But he's waiting. We so, so, so want our freedom, do we not? The idea, if you talk to an atheist, the idea that God might control you is despicable to them. And we do not want to be controlled, and God does not want to control us. He will let us do what we like. He really will. You can go and do whatever you like. He loves us too much to just control us. But it means he will give us over to the things that we go after. Even if they cause us and other people extreme pain. So let's be honest with ourselves, shall we? Sin does beget sin. It does get worse and worse and worse. 
And it is our responsibility. Someone doesn't like me talking about sin. <laughs> it is our responsibility. It's not his. What Saul has done is he's poured gasoline over his already burning, raging fire of envy. And it becomes what it inevitably will become, which is more. This is where our unchecked desires will lead us at some point. So shall we together get to the root of them? Do you have a desire problem? Are you envious? Particularly in uh, Western, hugely affluent cultures like ours, where the majority of people haven't really needed anything like warmth or clothing or food for centuries, desire runs rampant, doesn't it? Spend some time on Instagram. Desire runs rampant, doesn't it? Sorry, Instagram's about 10 years old. TikTok? 50 years ago, you might be connected to 100 people. 100 people who could, who could spark a desire in you. But now we're connected to thousands, thousands upon thousands, feeding us with desire after desire after desire after desire. Now, perhaps we haven't ended up with murder. Uh, if we have, we need to have a chat. Uh, let's do that straight away. But maybe we've ended up in adultery. We can chat about that if you'd like. Uh, not in the next two weeks. I'm on holiday. Uh, but when I get back, we will definitely talk about it. Uh, but if not adultery, then maybe stealing. Or probably lying. More than likely, we've ended up with resentment and bitterness. Because that's where it leads. Envy cannot enjoy the success of other people. It finds all the reasons to be embittered and resentful and angry instead. So can I ask you, do you not like it when other people do well? Secretly. You wouldn't tell anyone. You obviously wouldn't tell me now and you wouldn't admit to it now. But do you actually find it difficult when other people do well? This is a very silly illustration. And I'll admit at the beginning that I come off really well in it. But anyway, in this illustration, I tell it because it's kind of, um, it's inconsequential. Uh, but Hannah and I got engaged in New York. And we, um, after some scrapes with the Jewish mafia, got an engagement ring which uh, we didn't mean to have scrapes with the Jewish mafia, we just did. Uh, but we got a lovely, beautiful diamond engagement ring, and we were very pleased with it, and we went home, and as uh, is normal, um, we, we were both working at the same place, and Hannah showed it around to everyone. And so it was great. And then one of my friends, the first thing he did when he saw that engagement ring, it's nice and classy, uh, but he, he looked at it and he said, do not show my wife, she will be so jealous. Hers is much smaller. And it was, he was joking, he was trying to be um, self-deprecating, it was all funny. But it actually it, it kind of stuck with me. And just thought, what you've done is you've um, robbed yourself of any joy here. And you've robbed us of some joy. I mean, it's only tiny, it's, it's little, it's inconsequential. But it illustrates the point of how quickly, how quickly things can turn. How quickly we can go... I just don't want anyone else to be happy, because I'm not. Now, he's very happy. He's got a much bigger ring now. He's done very well. 
we jump to envy because we can find it incredibly difficult to enjoy other people's success because we have a desire problem. But at its worst, it means we're not only resentful of other people's success, we don't enjoy our own either. Saul is king. Things are going really well for him. He's winning all the battles, everything's going great, he's got this David hero who's slaying Goliath. All his generals are pleased, all the people are pleased, all the country, he's the first ever king for Israel, and the whole country is going really well, and they are singing songs about him. But he can't enjoy it for a second. I um, finally watched uh, The Last Dance, uh, the Michael Jordan thing, basketball. It's great. You should watch that. Um, the story of the Chicago Bulls. Uh, I still don't understand basketball at all, but it's very good. And he, he quite, I mean, what it clearly shows, he is the greatest athlete ever, ever, ever. There's no, don't, no one even comes close. It's amazing. But what was most interesting to me was by the end, when quite understandably, he has lost all motivation. He just can't be, he's just trying to get through this final thing, but he's finding it very difficult to motivate himself. And what he finds is the only way to motivate himself is to find someone he can beat up on. He loves it when someone trash talks him or does something so that he can actually instill in himself some desire to go and play. It's fascinating, but it's also so sad, isn't it? He's not enjoying his success. He's not enjoying being the best, not only basketball player, but athlete ever. He's enjoying playing only because he knows someone else is worse than him and he can prove it. That's a bit of a caricature but it's there. And Saul cannot enjoy what God has given him. He needs to beat David. What about you? Do you find it difficult to enjoy everything you have? Always needing something more. Resenting other people. It will eat you alive. So, what's the antidote? Um, as I said at the start of the series, the books of Samuel are ostensibly really about King David. But really, they are about King Jesus. They are like this sort of foreshadow of what is to come. They are like a longing for a king who is of a whole order of magnitude, more and better and greater and perfect more than an earthly king could ever be. And they depict David as this wonderful, wonderful king who is Messiah-like. He does Messiah things, and he, he acts like a Messiah. But ultimately, he's not the one. He's not enough for us. We need something more. And so what this book does is make us yearn for Jesus. We see a great society kind of crumbling under the weight of its own failings and brokenness. And it leads us going, please, something more. That's why it was written. Please, something more than this. But because of that, if we look hard enough, we actually find Jesus on every page, foreshadowing what is to come. And here, interestingly, Jesus is there not in, pers- in the person of David, but in the person of Jonathan. Because if Saul is depicted as all the violence 
that unchecked desire can cause, Jonathan is a picture of how to rob it of all its power. And he does it firstly by love. Verse 1. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. The thing about love is it really is selfless. I know that sounds simple, but the longer I've gone on in life, the more I've realized quite how compromised our love so often is. That if we really drill down into it, we realize how tainted human love can be. We say we love someone, but what we're actually saying is, I'm attracted to that person. I like what that person makes me feel. I like what that person does for me. I like how that person loves me back. I like what that person says about me. I like what that person says about the type of person I must be when other people see them. We love people for what they can do for us. I know that's so depressing, isn't it? But we do a bit, don't we? True love is selfless, entirely. And Jonathan, a human being, does get somewhere close to it here. True love says, me for you. I place myself into your life to build you up. And when you thrive, I thrive. Jonathan, it says, loves David as himself. True love actually says, all I want to do is to see you be great. Who could do that? Not me. Definitely not you. If we're honest. The famous uh, Corinthians passage about love begins like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not covet. Love does not give in to desire. It's often read at weddings. Like, look at this happy couple. They really love each other. Look, their love is kind and patient. The longer I hear it, the more I go, oh my goodness. It goes on. It does not boast. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's not easily angered. It doesn't dishonor. It's not self-seeking. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. That's true love. And this is what I think Jonathan is in some ways being able to display. But ultimately, what Paul describes there is not something human, but something divine. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus is true, perfect, selfless love. And so a key to ending all envy, all desire in us, is a surfeit of the love of Jesus. When we know the love of our maker, we can extend it in all its purity to other people. Our neighbor stops being our rival, and we start delighting in their success. Rather than being downcast when they succeed, we can rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And rather than being delighted in their failure, we can mourn with those who mourn, really and truly. So how do we get it? Or with this, I end. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic. 
and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan is Saul's heir. Jonathan is the one person, even more than Saul, who has every right to be envious of David. He is the one who, when his father dies, should succeed to the throne. But long, 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 long before his father's even dead, Jonathan is already crowning David as his king with no malice, no resentment, nothing about how can I get something from this. He's just doing it. To give David his robe is to give over his regal authority. To give him even his sword, though, is much, much better, much greater, much more weighty. The only reason in the Near East culture ancient culture, to give someone your sword is so so that they can kill you. You hand them your sword because you are mortally injured and you are hoping that they will kill you lest the enemy will come and do worse things to you. To give over a sword is to give over not just control, but it is putting your life in their hands. So Jonathan is not just abdicating his own claim for the throne, but he is giving David his whole self. Jonathan is saying, you could kill me, but I trust you. You can do anything, and I give myself over to you fully. Uh, There's this scene in the final episode of Succession. Yeah, we got it in there every week. I don't think this is a spoiler, but almost certainly it really is. Uh, Sorry about this. Just close your ears if you haven't watched it. Um, The three siblings who for four seasons have been fighting over who is going to succeed. And they've been backstabbing each other and treating each other terribly and lying and beating each other over and doing things behind their back and just all terrible, terrible things. They finally agree in the final episode, here's the spoiler, that Kendall should and the oldest brother should succeed. And for one brief moment, one solitary evening, all the pain of desire and envy falls off all three of them. And they're in their mother's kitchen, and they play a stupid game. And they are innocent again, and they are like children again. And for the first time in four seasons, Shiv smiles. And she smiles not because she's won or because she's done something great or because her dad has said that he's in his own special way slightly proud of her, but also she needs to be better. She doesn't smile in any of those ways. She smiles and she even laughs because she's having fun. Because she's happy. And so do the other two. They smile and they laugh and they enjoy each other. It's like all the weight of the world has fallen off their shoulders in that moment. And ultimately, what they are able to do in their horribly broken, terrible way that doesn't last but does for a second, is they're able to love one another. The way to love, the way away from desire and rivalry and envy and violence, is to give up your robe. All your rights to power and position but not just your robe, your sword too. All control and self-governance. And say to Jesus, you be in charge. The only thing I desire is you and to imitate you.
to be like you. And see how, if we're able to do this and to the degree to which we are, he will pour his love into us. We will be right with ourselves, with him, with our world, with our neighbor. And our desire will remain singly focused, stronger and stronger. The desire just for more of him, more and more and more of him. The only desire that truly satisfies. Amen. Amen. Let's sing a song about desire. Let's stand, shall we? And we'll sing a song of worship, and then we'll pray for people.